it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, May 11, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. From New York City today, also tomorrow as well. Very happy to have you all along from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday and around the clock on demand at GuyBensonShow.com on that podcast, which is growing in popularity thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com, that is the website here. We've got a great lineup today. Our first guest is with us in studio moments away. Later this hour, U.S. Senator Rick Scott will join us, Republican, Florida, not Wisconsin. Biden said Wisconsin yesterday. Florida. Fact check. General Jack Keane will be here in the next hour. Updates in Ukraine. Update on China. A disturbing U.S. intel report out today on that front. And then our friend and colleague Martha McCallum coming up in our final hour, the happy hour, here on The Guy Benson Show in studio with Martha. Looking forward to that. As we begin today's show, let's get right to it with my first guest, Larry Kudlow who is anchor of Kudlow, Fox Business Network, number one in the time slot, by the way, 4 p.m. every day, Eastern Time. And, fun little note, I will be joining the TV side with Larry Kudlow at around 4.30-ish Eastern Time in studio. So I will return the favor. We're doing like a home-and-home here. On set. Yes. On set, which is Can't wait for that. And I have to just say one other thing to address this. Larry and I were talking about it right before the show started. You might hear in my voice just a slight frog in my throat, just a little bit of hoarseness. I am not sick. I'm not under the weather. I was at one of the most exciting baseball games I've ever attended last night at Yankee Stadium, and I will recount the tale to all of you in the home stretch at the end of the show, and I hope you will tune in for that because it brings me great joy. With that, Larry, it's great to see you. Thanks for doing this. All the great patriots. We're Yankee fans. I like that. All of them, really, down through the years. George Washington especially. He knew about it. Tom Jefferson knew about it. Ben (laughs) Ben Franklin deserted Philadelphia. loved the New York Yankees. Just saying. That's right. Just saying. I mean, the famous quote from George Washington was, let's go Yankees, right? (laughs) I think that's somewhere on the monument. I I think that's history. I learned that from the 1619 Project, actually. Really good history over there. So, Larry, I want to start smaller micro picture and then broaden it out. Let's talk about the numbers on inflation from April. I know some of the headlines are saying it eased a little bit. In some ways it did, but even some Democratic economists out here are saying, actually, it's a very disturbing report because numbers are still right around 40-year highs. And the core inflation number got worse for the fourth consecutive month. I was looking at Jason Furman, who was pretty clear-eyed on this stuff, saying, This is not a good report. This is worrying in some crucial ways. And then Heather Long at the Washington Post said this. The big picture on inflation based on the data today, quote, it's going to remain painfully high for a while. Are you seeing those same breadcrumbs in this data? Yeah, I'm really proud of Heather. 
I was kind of working on her when I was down in Washington. She's got, she has her good moments, so I'm very pleased to hear this. Look, the number today came actually came in above Wall Street estimates, and when you look under the hood, it's not a good number. And I want to say you mentioned – I think you mentioned core inflation excluding yep. food and energy um, up six-tenths of one percent. So that's a seven percent annual rate. That's not a good number. And the year-on-year number is still 8.3% down slightly because of gasoline prices. Gasoline prices are coming back. You see it throughout. I just want to make this point. In the CPI, no matter where you look, prices are rising significantly. It's a broad-based price increase. I say that because some people, some presidents that we have currently – (laughs) <laughs> are trying to blame not to name names. I won't. I don't want to put a too fine a point on it. Are blaming Vladimir Putin uh, or the pandemic or Rick Scott? Uh, or what does he say? Ultra MAGA? Is it Ultra MAGA? Ultra MAGA? Mega MAGA? I like Mega MAGA better. Magatron? Whatever it is, and single out certain areas. This is a virulent across the board inflation. We haven't seen this in many many decades. And there's no let up in today's numbers. Nothing the Federal Reserve has done thus far has had any impact. And as you know, yesterday when Joe Biden spoke, his um, response to high inflation is to add more social spending. It's going to spend more. I love that. It's going to spend more. And he said spending is not the problem. Putin's the problem. Rick Scott is the problem. Ultra mega Republicans are the problem, but not his policies. Well, that's a problem. I mean, it's insane. I think you watched the speech yesterday. Were you watching it when he said, or do you just read the transcript later? No, I I watched it. Okay. Can I just tell you, I was on the outnumbered couch. We were watching it, taking notes, getting ready to react live on the news channel. It didn't even feel like he believed what he was saying. He was reading. He was listless. There was no passion. There was no seeming connection to the words that he was speaking. And I wonder, like, does he deep down know how pathetic the talking points are? It's hard, actually. Uh, Look, I don't want to defend it, but it's very hard to be enthusiastic about a huge inflation number that's bringing down your presidency. Yeah, So maybe as he was reading the teleprompter line by line, sort of getting deeper and deeper into a political malaise of his own making. That's it. And I just want to add to this. I mean, here, to go back to the beginning, this report will be one of many. You're going to get producer prices tomorrow. Then you're going to get import prices. There is no progress on lower inflation whatsoever. This is a multi-year problem, and it becomes a multi-year problem not only for the workforce, whose real wages are falling, but also for the economy, which will probably go from high inflation to recession Mm. at some point in the next couple of years. It is also, Guy, I think, absolute testimony to the breakdown of the progressive agenda, which in this case was about modern monetary theory, meaning you can spend whatever you want Mm -hmm. and the Federal Reserve can print as much money as they want and it will have no impact on inflation. And seldom in all my years of being in this business, in and out of government, have I seen some premise like that be so totally, utterly wrong, utterly wrong, blown out of the water wrong. And so in some sense, I like this story. 
Because I couldn't have done a better job of disproving the progressive model than what President Biden himself has done. Well, and, and this is – I, I love no, – Whatever happens – let's look at this. Whatever happens, he steadfastly refuses to change his policies. I mean you got people out there like Joe Manchin who wants to save the Democrats from themselves. Larry Summers, Steve listen. Ratner. I mean – Summers, right. A good economist. Okay, I've known Larry many, 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 many years. So there are some moderate Democrats, pro, pro-business Democrats, who reject the progressive model, the far-left model, and they're doing their best. Biden won't listen. The White House is like a fortress, so he will not remove or replace any of his senior domestic and economic advisors, and they continue along the merry way of the Bernie Sanders AOC agenda. And they're getting killed on inflation, and it's going to continue. That's my point. Yeah. It seems like he doesn't really have the juice even to make changes. He doesn't know what to do. He's a lifelong politician. He's a liberal Democrat, not this liberal mm. or progressive or left wing, but that's where the party's going. I mean, he should be bringing in people like Larry Summers and Jason Furman. And it's not like they're aliens from Mars and it's not like they're <laughs> Reagan Trump Republicans. No, they're Obama Like guys. some people in this studio. Right. They work for Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. They have been right on the biggest issue of the time, which is inflation. He should bring them in, okay? They have both served terms. Uh, Jason was um, Jason was uh, CEA chairman, and Summers had my old job, NEC director. Bring them back in. They were right. His advisors were wrong. You need to make changes. But what instead the public sees, the voting public sees a paralyzed White House with a paralyzed president – who's just watching the bad times roll by. It's a bad story. And saying, let's keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I like the point that you made a few moments ago, which was as painful as this reality is for Americans, that's the worst part. You know, Republicans can say, oh, you know, this is going to help us politically. Ultimately, people are hurting. That's the biggest problem here. The fact that the Democrats are in trouble is sort of like the silver lining to the dark cloud. The dark cloud is people are hurting when people like... Larry Kudlow, sit there and say, if you spend $2 trillion Mm. on so-called relief on COVID, this is getting too hot. There's way too much money out there. This is a problem. If I say something similar on this show, what do we get? We get attacked by, you know, various people who are paid to attack us. We get fact-checked by the fact-checkers who say all we do is lie. Sometimes the only way... I bring my numbers with me. That's the thing. Seriously, you have to. I bring my factoids with me. But the thing is, if you are making predictions or an analysis about if the Democrats do X, Y, and Z, they're going to get into trouble on inflation, the economy is going to be hurt, Americans will be hurt, they will say that's a bunch of right-wing lies. Sometimes the only way to prove that our ideas are correct is to let the Democrats do their thing and let's go to the videotape and see how it's going for the American people. You can't spin this reality. You can't fact check this reality. I mean, Joe Biden stood up there yesterday in front of the country, in front of the world, and said spending is not the problem. Just said that. He just asserted that. And he said his policies have helped. In fact, let's play. Here's a little montage from yesterday. Cut one. Do you take any responsibility for inflation in this country? Do you take any responsibility for your policies? I think our policies help, not hurt. There are two leading causes of inflation we're seeing today. The first cause of inflation is a once-in-a-century pandemic. A second cause, Mr. Putin's war in Ukraine. 
You saw, we saw in March that 60% of inflation that month was due to price increases at the pump. So Putin, price hike, pandemic, and my policies are helping, not hurting. I mean, keep saying it. No one believes this, right? Like the American people don't believe that. So he can keep saying it and that's, just keep digging. That's what surprises me because, you know, he's been in the game a long time. I mean, professional politicians are supposed to be professional politicians. So when, every, when, it, when everybody outside your house says you're wrong, you know it's kind of time to change. They won't do that here. Unless you're a Supreme Court justice and they're literally outside your house. Well, that is but, a yeah, separate matter. Go ahead. But they're not professional politicians. I mean, right, right. you know, the Bill Clinton example is the best one. A Democrat came in, uh, worked as a liberal, got his brains beaten out in the elections, and then changed. Okay? Changed. A more moderate Triangulation. Course, and became very popular and uh, pursued policies that I uh, supported, some of them anyway. So I keep thinking, or many people keep thinking, when's Biden going to have a reset? When's he going to do like Bill Clinton? And he never does. He never does. Bill Clinton changed staff. Bill Clinton changed chief of staff, budget director, council of economic advisor. I remember all this well in the 1990s. Biden won't do any of that stuff. Why? Well, that's really interesting and important question. I don't know that I can answer that. I mean, here's Joe Biden, a guy who's been around for so many years and understands, I think, political dynamics, how you have to change, alter, modify, and they won't. He's stubbornly digging in and he's holding a losing hand and he keeps betting more and more chips on this losing hand. They want to bet $5 trillion worth of chips with Build Back Better. Even with all this happening with inflation ramping up, they came within, what, a vote or two in the Senate of passing Build Back Better. Every House Democrat voted for the thing. Save America. Kill the bill. That's <laughs> our finest No, but it's, like, it's almost like, you know, save the save Democrats, the, kill the bill. Because well, it would be even worse for them right like now. Like I keep saying, Joe Manchin's trying to save the Democrats and themselves, but they won't listen to him. They won't listen to the guy. Same with Kirsten Sinema, maybe a couple others. I don't know. Manchin's the best, most outstanding guy. But look, that's all neither here nor there. The problem is... After inflation, middle-class wages are falling 3% over the past year. Second problem is energy prices are rising, food prices are rising, electricity prices are rising, services prices are rising, rents are rising. This is a full-scale, virulent, across-the-board inflation. And actually, here's the other part. The Federal Reserve is going to have to take the punch bowl away, but they have not yet begun. Mm. So all of that pain is still in front of us because they – That's must, why you're saying this is it's a multi-year, happening multi-year. It's a multi-year problem. It's a multi-year problem. The, aforema- uh, the aforementioned Jason Furman in his analysis this morning said he was very concerned about the, the core services inflation yep. up for four straight months. He also said U.S. inflation remains roughly double on the core side what it is in Europe – which is also affected by pandemic and Mr. Putin's war, and yet we're in worse shape than they are. I don't think pandemic. I think that's a straw horse. I think – let me just make this pandemic, which I think has become shorthand for supply bottlenecks. Probably. Can I just tell you something? One reason we have supply bottlenecks is that the Bidens have put so much extra cash into the economy generating this massive increase in demand, okay? In economic terms, nominal GDP, total spending in the economy, is growing at double digits. So I'm just saying, even if you had smooth supply chains, 
even if the longshoremen in Los Angeles and Long Beach ports actually went to work every day or worked twenty four seven, you couldn't meet the demand. You could not meet the demand because we've overloaded it so badly. And that point gets lost in a lot of analysis. It's almost as if there are basic economic laws about words like supply and demand, demand that happen and actually are real, no matter how much political spin or fact-checking you try to put on it, there are laws of gravity when it comes to the economy and uh, that gravity. And then the best part is still my favorite. I mean, he wants more money for new uh, Green New Deal stuff. Yeah, keep spending. It wouldn't be a Biden speech if he didn't put a few more shekels into the Green New Deal pot. But you know what? He wants to end fossil fuels. His crowd wants to end fossil fuels. This is a jump into the great unknown because they have never outlined an alternative structure. Never well, once. And hopefully they're going to lose power here in a couple of months because we're within six months as November well, they're losing power because electricity is rising so fast. Ha, ha, ha. Larry Kudlow. <laughs> a, that, the cavalry. We'll, we'll, we can't do better than that, Joe. We're up on a break. The cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. I say that. In November, and part of the cavalry is me on your show. <laughs> Around 4.30, Fox Business Today, Kudlow FBN. Great to see you, Larry. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Presidente Biden, por favor, pare el juego de la culpa y enfrente el problema de la inflación en el país. La gente simplemente no aguanta más. Sus palabras nos dejaron hoy a todos simplemente con la boca abierta. ¿eh? I'm Guy Benson, back on the Guy Benson Show. That was the voice of Luis Carlos Vélez of Univision. Really giving it tough to President Biden on the inflation speech we were just chatting with Larry Kudlow about. Here's the translation into English. President Biden, please stop the blame game and face the inflation problem in this country. People can't just take it anymore. Your words today flabbergasted us all, okay? We've talked about the Hispanic vote shifting, right? That type of commentary, I think, is significant coming on a network like Univision. And it seems to me that the White House spin does not translate well in any language. English, Spanish, you name it. And that's a problem for the president, problem for his party, and of course a problem for the country. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show from New York today and tomorrow. Very glad to have you all here. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program needs, including the free podcast on demand. No charge to you. That's every single day. Joining us now 
is U.S. Senator Rick Scott, a Republican from Florida. He's also chairman of the NRSC for the 2022 cycle. And, Senator, you are from Florida, correct? Not somewhere in the upper Midwest? I know. The president was confused with a lot of things yesterday, including what state I'm from. That's right. He said Wisconsin. I think he might have been thinking of Ron Johnson, but he was addressing you. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Before we get into sort of this war of words and the president's remarks yesterday, just a few things on the Senate side. Number one, the upper chamber is poised to vote on this abortion bill that the Democrats have rolled out. I see that they do not even have 50 votes for it, let alone 60. They're going to be maybe in the 48, 49 range. Joe Manchin confirmed that he's a no. Even some pro-choice Republican senators say this goes way too far. Are you surprised, Senator, that the Democrats are putting out a bill this radical and this extreme as their on-the-record abortion stance that has support from less than one out of five Americans? Guy, this is just shows it's a radical left that controls the Democrat Party now. I mean, they're, they they are going to vote— all right. They're going to lose the vote, but they're going to all vote other than Joe Manchin to say you can you can abort a baby up until the moment of birth. And you as a taxpayer are going to pay for these abortions, not only in the United States, but overseas. And if you have a religious conscious belief that you shouldn't be part of this, oh, you don't have that right anymore. That's what they're voting for. I mean, this is radical. I mean, I think I think we all believe, you know, that there's there can be some reasonable limitations, but we do believe that these are babies and we should keep them uh, alive and cherish life. Uh, so this is disgusting what they're doing. I don't get it. But, you know, guy, I've watched I've been up here three and a half years. I've watched the Democrats want to take votes on things that are so radical that when when people run for office, all they have to do is say, that person believes in this radical policy, so who would vote for that person? And that this is one of them. Well, I mean, and this, this is make any sense to me. And the thing, Senator, and this probably helps you guys over at the NRSC, there's a lot of very important races coming up in November on the Senate side, a 50-50 split, and you asked who's going to vote in favor of nine-month elective abortion on demand for any reason up to the moment of birth, paid for by taxpayers and forcing you know, Catholic health care workers to participate in the abortion. That's the bill that they're voting on literally right now as we speak on the Senate floor. And the answer to that question, who supports this? Well, uh, Cortez Masto in Nevada supports this. Kelly in Arizona supports this. Warnock in Georgia Warnock supports this. Hassan pastor <laughs> supports this. Yeah, exactly. He's he's he calls himself a pro-choice pastor. This goes way beyond pro-choice. This is something altogether more extreme. Uh, Hassan in New Hampshire supports this, and the nominees there they might put up in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. They're even further left than some of the names that I just mentioned. I mean, this is where their party is right now, and it feels like there's a handful of folks like Manchin and a, a few others on different issues who are begging them just to at least pretend to be a little bit more moderate, and they can't bring themselves to do it. They can't, they can't do it. And so it's not good for the country where they are, and it's actually going to be helpful to us in our races uh, this, uh, this fall. 
but it's not good for the country. The country is not a radical left country. That's what the Democrats and Joe Biden are trying to do. It's not where this country is. I want to also play for you the words. This was a Q&A earlier with Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, at least for now. And he was asked about these protests at the homes of Supreme Court justices outside their houses. We've seen it happen at three different justices' houses so far. Their addresses were doxxed, put on the Internet. You had people screaming F-bombs into bullhorns. And the whole point is to intimidate at their home at their private residence in their neighborhood. Schumer says he's comfortable with it. Cut 23. Listen. Are you comfortable with the protests that we saw outside the homes of Supreme Court justices over the weekend? If protests are peaceful, yes. My house is, there's protests three, four times a week outside my house. That's the, uh, the American way to peacefully protest is okay. And I've been, that's my wife. Sorry. Um, maybe there's a protest outside. But so so as long as they are peaceful, that's that's OK with me. Senator, I understand that Chuck Schumer has security. I understand that the far left pickets his house on a somewhat regular basis. I think that is over the line and bad when they do it to him. I think doing it to judges to try to influence a case is significantly worse. And it looks like probably illegal And it sounds like Chuck Schumer just endorsed those tactics. As long as it's the other side, he's fine with any of these things. I mean, mean, did did any did one Democrat? I don't know. Maybe there was call out the the violence against the, uh, you know, any churches or anything. I think Mark. I, I saw Mark Warner maybe do it, but it's been very muted. I mean. Come on. I mean, if you I mean, look, you shouldn't be out there intimidating a Supreme Court justice and threatening violence against a Supreme Court justice. That's not what you should be doing. Uh, so, I mean, but but as long as it fits the radical left agenda, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats are all OK with it. That's it. That's where this country is right now. And so we've got to provide more security for our Supreme Court justices now and their families. This cannot be, it, it cannot be. I mean. Thank God we had the founders we had to set up a constitution that works. Let's let the constitution work. First off, we don't even know what the opinion is. We know what a draft opinion was. Let's let's see what the opinion is. And then we can make a decision. That's That's how this country was set up. And then we'll have a debate about how we go forward. Yep. And if you have a problem with what the court does, you can go to the court and you can protest outside the court. That is very different than leaking the home address of six justices and sending people to go intimidate them and their families uh, at their homes. But Biden said, or I guess Biden basically uh, endorsed it through Jen Psaki. Schumer just explicitly endorsed it, saying as long as they're not, you know, destroying property or hurting people, then it's okay with him. I think that's a very dark road to go further down. Uh, But it seems like it doesn't seem like he said that he is comfortable with that. I guess when his side does it, I think he might feel a little differently when the roles are reversed and it's not right wingers at his house, it's left wingers at his house, which is part of the point here. Senator, we were on outnumbered yesterday, back to back. You were responding to the president's speech on inflation. I was then on the panel reacting to both the president and to you. One of the questions that was posed to President Biden during the Q&A was about something you said about him he had a very quick, curt reply. Let's listen to cut 24 real quick. He said, and I'm just quoting here, that uh, 
The best thing, the most effective thing Joe Biden can do to solve the inflation crisis he created is resign. He's the problem. Resign. The senator added later. The senator added later. Joe Biden is unwell. He's unfit for office. He's incoherent, incapacitated, and confused. These are his words. Offering you a chance to respond. I think the man has a problem. That was it. I think the man, meaning you, has a problem. You had some tough words about him. He says you have a problem. Do you want to keep this going? What's your response to that? Well, I mean, he, he, we all know he can't do the job. I mean, we, we watch, you watch his press conference. I mean, he's confused about what state I live in. He confuses the facts. I mean, you feel sorry for the guy because you know that he can't do the job. Look at the Biden economy. 8.3% inflation, probably, what, a 40-year high. The gas price is highest ever. You can't buy baby formula. In the United States of America, mothers can't get baby formula. This is the United States of America. We've got low labor participation. We've got a GDP that's going down, interest rates going up, stock market going down. I mean, this is a problem. This guy doesn't have any plan. Like yesterday was a press conference on his plan to fix inflation. You know what his plan was? Blame everybody else. He has no ideas. So, you know, in business, here's what would happen in a business. You know, you'd say, Joe, come on. I know you tried hard. You just can't do the job. Maybe we got another job for you, but you can't have this one. And we're going to put somebody in there that can do the job. That's what we need to be doing here. He can't do it. He has no ideas how to fix it. Would you rather have the vice president? He can't do it. Would you rather have the vice president in that role? I don't know how it could be any worse. I mean, what could she – what could possibly – you look at the radical um, people he's appointing to these, to these boards and commissions, and, and, then, and how could she be any worse than what he is? Oh, she might try. <laughs> I, mean, I think she'd give it her best shot. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering, the, the, the incompetence. I mean, Romando, the Secretary of Commerce, came to testify the other day. I said, what are you doing to stop inflation? She said, oh, it's all the Federal Reserve's problem. I asked, I asked the Secretary of Transportation, Buttigieg, what are you doing to fix, fix the supply chain? I said, you've been out to the, the ports in California once. He says he, he, had, no, he had no answer. That all they do is they blame somebody else. Wait, hang on. The Transportation Secretary – I just want to go back. The Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, has gone out to the ports in California only one time? Right. Wow. I mean, you know, I had hurricanes, right? I'm a, first off, I'm a business guy. When you have a business problem, what do you do? You go show up and you stay there until it gets solved. If you ever bring in a new management team, if you have to work through you know, the employees, if you have to build relationships, you stay and fix it. He's been there once, once. Mm. And so you, know, you think, don't you guys want to do something here? You look at, you look at, look at the border. I said, I mean, what name one thing you're doing to make the border more secure. I told, I told the Secretary of Homeland Security, how does it make you feel when a National Guard member dies trying to save migrants that would not be coming here illegally but for your actions? And by the way, those migrants were bringing drugs into the country to kill American citizens. I said, how does it make you feel when 105,000 people, 105,000 people died of drug overdoses last year? I said, and you did it. You personally did it. You decided to have a open border. You decided to stop building the wall. You just you decided to tell people they could come here. That's why you sit and you stop and say, what is their purpose? Are they just completely incompetent? Is this gross negligent or is this intentional? 
But what I know, it's bad for American families. So I'm going to do everything I can to rescue this country. This country is a great country. We can become a great country again, but we got to change what we're doing. So I, I do on that front, I want to ask you on one more subject. You mentioned the blame game from President Biden, and he was blaming oil companies and other private institutions. He was blaming Putin. He was blaming pandemic. It was, you know, the whole usual list. He wouldn't blame himself. He said his policies are helping, not hurting, uh, which I think is a bunch of Republican ads for NRSC and for Republican candidates everywhere that he believes that most Americans obviously don't believe that. One of the other people that he blamed by name a lot is you talking about the plan that you put forward. And they are really on the Democratic side harping on this one component, which is getting every American in on the tax paying game, some skin in the game. I understand the appeal of it on some level, but it would in practice, you know, raise taxes on a lot of Americans. And the Democrats are trying to turn that into an attack on the Republican Party that the whole party is planning to raise taxes on the American people. That's the secret agenda of the Republican Party. And you just sort of let the cat out of the bag. You said yesterday on TV that that was just your idea that's worth discussing. It's not the Republican Party's plan. Mitch McConnell has rejected it. Others have as well. I wonder, do you think it might be worth just taking that bullet point out of your plan since the Democrats are exploiting it and trying to make it seem like Republicans want to raise taxes when that's the opposite of what Republicans typically campaign on? Let's let's think about what I said. Okay, first off, go to rescueamerica.com. It's rescueamerica.com and read it. Here's what I believe. I'm a kid that grew up in public housing to a single mom. You know what? You know how I, I got in, got in the game? I got a job. When you get a job, you actually become a taxpayer, right? And you might buy a house. And you, and you also might buy a car, so you pay sales tax, a house, you pay property taxes. You get a job, you pay payroll taxes. That's how you do it. You don't raise taxes on people. I've cut taxes and fees 100 times. Joe Biden, in contrast, has never found a tax he didn't want to increase. What I believe in, I believe in the capitalist system, that we are all in this together. I think every able-bodied American, we ought to get back to work. Let's be part of building this country. And guess what else happens? When people go back to work and start paying taxes, they say, you know what? I don't need the government to pay for my food, so I don't need those food stamps. I don't need the government to give me unemployment money. I don't need the government, the government to pay for my health care. Those programs are supposed to be short-term safety net programs, not telling people don't work. So when I, I'm very clear, I believe in this. I believe we're all in this together. And the way we're all in this together is we've got to get to work, So all of us part of it. So just to be clear, in a Republican majority, if you guys win back the majority, House and or Senate, in November, and that majority kicks in in January, you, Senator Scott, would not vote for any bill that raises taxes on any American? No, absolutely not. I will not raise taxes. I didn't. I fought it the whole time as governor. I cut taxes and fees a hundred times. I fought it since I've been up here. Okay. I just just wanted to underscore it because they're they're pounding away at it. Raise taxes. Republicans are not going to raise taxes on anybody. We're not voting for tax increases. Democrats vote for tax increases. We don't. But here's what I did. I put out my ideas. But here's what I want. Let's fight over the ideas. Let's let's all fight, and then, but let's come up with a plan. So when we win in November, which I believe we will, we're going to say these are the things we're going to do. It doesn't have to be Rick Scott's ideas. 
It can be Guy Benson's or somebody else's ideas. Give me your ideas, but let's let's have a plan. Let's let's be hell bent on rescuing this country and changing the direction. Of this yeah, country. a different plan. We can become the best country again. A different plan than what we heard yesterday, if you can even call it a plan from Joe Biden, which was just the same stale, regurgitated talking points that he's been using for months that have driven him down to a thirty-five percent approval rating, if that, on the economy. And if he wants to stick with that, I mean, you know, go for it. That's sort of my mentality here. NRSC chairman and U.S. Senator Rick Scott is a Republican from Florida. Senator, we're up on a break here. We always appreciate your time. Thanks very much today. Have a good, have a great day, Guy. Bye-bye. Likewise. And we'll take a quick break. We will come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, that Senate vote is underway right now. So we'll actually Fox News alert into that. We are monitoring the Senate floor where it's a procedural vote. They need to get to 60. They're not going to come close. I think they'll be probably something like a dozen votes short. This is the the crazy radical abortion bill that Schumer has decided, I guess, as a show vote. They have no intention of it becoming law. It's not going to pass. It passed out of the House. Nancy Pelosi's House passed this thing, including every single member of her caucus except for Cuellar from Texas. They all voted for this. Tim Ryan in Ohio voted for this. Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania voted for this. It is way out there. And almost every Democrat again in the Senate is going to vote for it. But all the Republicans are a no, and at least one or two Democrats are no's. They won't even get to a majority, let alone 60. But that vote is happening right now. And they want to say, vote for us because of abortion. We're not the radicals. So let's pass a bill that makes abortion legal for nine months till the moment of birth. It's crazy. So we will uh, keep looking at that as the vote is held open, but the the outcome is already clear. Interesting conversation there with Senator Rick Scott in the previous segment. If you missed it, go back on the podcast. Still so much more to get to here on today's show. General Jack Keene is up next. Martha McCallum still to come. It is The Guy Benson Show. A fresh hour is straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks so much for listening. We're in New York today and tomorrow. Some TV still to come. Some beautiful television to make. With Larry Kudlow coming up in a little while. Tomorrow, America Reports. Tomorrow, Gutfeld as well. GuyBensonShow.com is our radio program home online. GuyBensonShow.com. Every show on demand for free. No charge to you. At your fingertips. That's the podcast. Also, other goodies at GuyBensonShow.com. We encourage you to follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow. Twitter and Instagram. You can just throw us a follow if you think of it at Guy Benson Show for both of those platforms. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow gets hit today. I think the inflation numbers that we discussed with Larry at the top of the show, Larry Kudlow, probably not sitting well with the markets, obviously. The Dow closing down 326 points seven minutes ago, ending the day at 31,834. And another Fox News alert. As expected, the Senate 
abortion bill put forward by the Democrats, this radical bill, is in fact going down to defeat. It's going to fail on the floor of the Senate as that vote is still being held open. But this is a swing and a miss, thankfully, for the Democrats. And they went so far that they couldn't even get all of their own people on board uh, for this, what I view as a monstrosity. Whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, this is something altogether different. Okay, with us now to talk about foreign affairs and foreign policy is General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, as always, it's great to have you here. Yeah, delighted to be here, Dad, with you and your audience. I want to start not with Ukraine. We'll get there because it's related. But instead, the headlines today, I saw a report a little while ago on Fox News Channel from our colleague Jennifer Griffin. There are high-ranking U.S. officials, including the DNI, Avril Haines, who told lawmakers that the U.S. intelligence community believes that China is, quote, working hard to carry out a military takeover of Taiwan. Haynes said that the threat to Taiwan is, quote, acute. In our view, they, the Chinese, are working hard to effectively put themselves into a position in which their military is capable of taking Taiwan over our intervention. And the New York Post report mentions that Beijing is closely watching Russia's invasion of Ukraine to gauge the level of America's potential opposition to any sort of similar move against Taiwan. I know that we've talked about this in the past. My guess is, unfortunately, it will be a live issue uh, for quite a while here. What is your read on this, General, in terms of what the Chinese might be evaluating right now as they watch Ukraine and what factors might come into play as they try to make a decision one way or another on whether to try to take Taiwan? Yeah, well, certainly, as we have said many times, uh, we, we believe that since President Xi came into office and he has contributed to the most rapid military expansion that any country has ever gone through since except during the World War II buildup years. Um, and, and he outguns us and outmans us in the region as a result of it. Uh, number two, he has said publicly uh, many, many times that uh, Taiwan is a part of China, and if uh, they don't voluntarily uh, submit to our our rule, then he would take it uh, by force, and he intends to uh, to do that as part of his legacy. Uh, so, I don't believe this is anything new that the uh, intelligence services is talking about here. Right. Uh, I, I have believed that, and since the Ukrainian uh, invasion by Russia, I believe, and I've said publicly, that uh, despite uh, there's much to learn uh, and impact on China as a result of Ukraine and Russia, and we can get into the specifics of that, uh, but it would not deter uh, President Xi uh from using force, if necessary, to take take Taiwan. That is in his national interest, in, in his judgment. And I don't believe there's anything that could happen inside Ukraine uh, that would take him off, off that particular path. I think what they are watching very closely 
is uh, certainly learning something from the underperformance of the Russian military. And what specifically are those failings? And do any of those failings relate to their perception of, of their own military? Uh, secondly, they're watching very closely the impact uh, that the invasion by Russia is having uh, writ large on the world. Uh, certainly the United States, NATO nations, but even larger than that in, in terms of what a similar impact could occur uh, to them. They know full well, and as you do know, Guy, that if we impose sanctions on China, they would not have the same uh, material and tangible effect that they have on Russia, who has a much smaller economy and certainly doesn't have anything close to a global economy. Well, I also think it would be harder to rally the world the same way against China because so many people are beholden to China and China's done that by design, right? They've tried to make it so that the world can't fully rally against them economically. And even with Russia, you know, there's many countries that have chosen not to take a side and maintain a, a sort of neutrality, some tangibly supporting Russia like South Africa, but most, um, and there's scores of nations that, uh, that are sort of neutral, the most prominent, of course, are Israel and, and India. Uh, so, yes, there, there would certainly be some of that dealing with China for, for the reasons uh, that you that you mentioned. And certainly they are also looking at uh, the reputational risk uh, that they would en entertain as a result of this. They're, they're getting some of that now because of their association with Russia and and the atrocities that have been committed and the uh, reputational risk, even with that association, impacts them to a certain degree. Ken. But I don't think any of those issues, performance of Russian military, attitude of the world writ large, reputational risk, any of those would be a major criteria uh, for stopping President Xi from accomplishing his national interest, and that's to take control of Taiwan. Do you have any sense on when that <clears throat> might happen in terms of timeline? No, I mean, I, my, our, our concern in the national security arena is, if anything, you know, prior to Ukraine, the timeline has moved up, uh, as opposed to sometime uh, during the decade of the 20s, in other words, by the end of 2030, it would likely be done one way or the other. Mm. I think it, it's it's moved closer uh, uh, to execution. Mm. And I some mean, of that has to do with internal issues that China is dealing with. Uh, you know, their economy was slowing down before the Shanghai lo lockdown and other internal issues that, that they're facing. And also, they, they know full well that the United States is – is attempting to upgun itself. They know full well that Japan is doing the same. So is Australia, and and there, there is allies and partnerships that are, that are gathering momentum in their willingness to confront China. So they see that happening also, and and that window of opportunity the clock's for them running. may be in the near term versus the long term. And I'm obviously hoping and praying this never happens. And <clears throat> Taiwan's no, a democracy, and and we very much hope that it never comes to pass, that the Chinese don't try, if and when they do, compared to Russia's effort in Ukraine, militarily, I'd imagine it might be harder. You can tell me. Would it be harder to invade an island 
like Taiwan. I feel like there would be a lot of challenges there. Uh, of course, China has a much better, I think, military than the Russians. Uh, they can't be more incompetent, you would think, having seen what Russia's just uh, – you know, the performance they've put on in the last couple of months. What's your read on that? Well, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, going 100 miles across the Taiwan Straits is formidable. I mean, to take control of the country requires boots on the ground, and that means an amphibious assault. I mean, they they, they could also uh, parachute people in, helicopter them in. But the real invasion force would have to be launched uh, across the sea, and that's completely different and dr- dramatically more challenging than driving a across the border from uh, Russia into uh, into Ukraine. All, all that said, um, they have other options as well. I mean, that's the that's the, sort of the the option in terms of taking complete control and and be willing to commit to an operation that would likely last uh, for weeks and certainly likely bring the United States and allies in. But they have other options where they can plop down on an island that's very close to the Chinese mainland, literally right off the coast, a number of Taiwan islands are, and put troops there and and see what happens. Uh, does Taiwan do something about that? What does the United States do? Um, and it begins to, uh, you know, to hopefully erode the support in, in their minds that the United States and allies would have. I mean, my own reaction to something like that is, is fairly simple. If you put troops on an island there, uh, a Taiwan island, the United States should put troops inside Taiwan and and say, yeah, we'll get our troops out of here when you get your troops off of Taiwan, Taiwan's territory. Um, another option that they have is a blockade of Taiwan's major ports, all of them, or just some of them. And, and what kind of, that's an act of war, what kind of a reaction they get. So they have, then they have what I call the quick kill option, which is just go all out to take down the National Command Authority in Taiwan air and missile attack and with uh, special ops death squads uh, trying to kill as many of the National Command Authority leaders as they possibly can and members of parliament uh, and get a white flag surrender without ever having to conduct uh, an mm. amphibious invasion. So there's there's a number of options yeah, that they All they disturbing. Have, but, yeah, all very uh, concerning, right. When it comes to Ukraine and the offensive from the Russians in the eastern part of Ukraine, I see that President Zelensky saying that the Ukrainians are gaining ground near Kharkiv. The Russians are being pushed back. What is the state of play in eastern Ukraine uh, by your estimation, General? Yeah, well, the Ukrainians have had so much success in the Kharkiv uh, enclave that within days uh, it's going to collapse. And uh, and they pushed uh, much of the Russian artillery and its forces back towards the Russian border. Even uh, the Russians pulled forces from the Izum-Donbass axis, whose mission it was to penetrate the Donbass back to solve the problem uh, at Kharkiv, and that, they're not making a difference. So that's a major successful undertaking, only uh, uh, in significance, only it was— there's certainly the success they've enjoyed in pushing the Russians out from around the uh, the Kiev RK uh, enclave a couple of months ago. And also, I, I would tell you that the offensive operation to secure the entire Donbass region 
They owned a portion of it before the invasion. They want to take it all. Uh, that has stalled, and so much so that uh, we at the Institute for the Study of War uh, believe it will fail. That So that the second offensive that the Russians are conducting wow. is, is actually leading to failure. What they will likely do, I know you, we're running out of time, is is the Russians will likely politicize the territory they now own, which they did not own before, by potentially annexing Kyrgyzstan, a city they're occupying, and the area around it. They refer to it as an oblast, similar to a Yeah, I mean, they, they could try, but, but what you just said a moment ago is huge, that you guys think that they are setting up for another failure in Ukraine. That would be huge. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, appreciate it. Thank you. It's The Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in from New York City today. I want to address something happening in the state of Georgia. So if you're listening right now on our affiliate Extra down in Atlanta, maybe your ears just perked up a little bit. But it has national implications and a national lesson as well. We talked last year at length about the issue down in Georgia on the voting legislation, right, the election reforms that were passed down in that state. And we covered at length the hysteria that was unleashed by the left. You remember what they said, that this was a racist voter suppression effort to make it harder for people to vote based on a big lie And it was really just the second coming of Jim Crow, right? It was segregation all over again. That's what we were told. Now, you expect to be told a bunch of nonsense from certain left-wing activists because it's all that they do. They're rabble-rousers. They lie constantly. They are hysterical and shrill. They have... Fellow activists in the media who amplify that stuff all the time and these pressure campaigns, basically whenever a Republican tries to do anything in the exercise of the power given to that Republican by the electorate, wherever it might be, there's a freak out. And you just go down the list from tax cuts that were supposed to be Armageddon in 2017 People were going to die. Even a change in regulation about the Internet, net neutrality, that was going to kill a bunch of people. The old net neutrality genocide of the Trump administration. We've somehow all survived that. Then there's the bill, for example, in Florida. They come up with names for it. Don't say gay. The list goes on. Abortion right now. It's just always constant. They have one playbook, and they run that play over and over again. And what they have found in recent years is that it works in terms of whipping up hysteria on social media, whipping up hysteria and anger among a lot of people who shape the culture, including, of course, the news media. They often go along with it. And perhaps most importantly, in influencing companies, corporations, businesses, entities, to get involved in politics, 
to wade into the morass and take sides. That's the whole point of the pressure. So in Georgia last year, with Jim Crow 2.0, Joe Biden calling it worse than Jim Crow, which was ahistorical and insulting, the left and its machinery went into high gear. And the demagoguery and the lies came raining down. Prominently from the President of the United States himself. Let's go to the audio flashbacks. This matters, and I'm going somewhere with all of this. When we come back, it's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm in the middle of an extended monologue here, folks. And I hope you just roll with me because I'm getting to a point, but I want to set it up. And when we left off, I was talking about President Biden and others spewing a heavy dose of lies about the Georgia election law last year. All of the Jim Crow stuff, all the racial stuff, you remember maybe vaguely some of it, but the lies were head spinning. And some of those lies emanated from the very top, from the Oval Office. Here's a walk down memory lane, and this is not ancient history. This is last year, Biden on the Georgia law cut 25. This is Jim Crow on steroids, what they're doing in in Georgia and 40 other states. What it's all about. Imagine passing a law saying you cannot provide water or food for someone standing in line to vote. Can't do that? Come on. Or you're going to close a polling place at 5 o'clock when working people just get off? This is all about keeping working folks and ordinary folks that I grew up with from being able to vote. You can't give out water? Now, that's just not true. There were so many things said about the Georgia law that were factually wrong. It expanded in meaningful ways early voting. But they twisted the whole thing up, invented a bunch of stuff, jammed it all into a few talking points, and decided worse than Jim Crow, Jim Crow on steroids is what they were going to go with, i.e. racism. Naked racism in the 21st century because of Brian Kemp and the Republicans in Georgia. Now, why am I talking about this? I'll get there. There's a punchline to all of this. Wait for it. I'm just trying to make sure we're all remembering together. We covered it at the time a lot. I'm just walking down memory lane with you right now as we build toward my point. Here's another quote from the president of the United States about what was happening in Georgia. Cut 26. Jim Crow 2.0 is about two insidious things. Voter suppression and election subversion. No. It's no longer about who gets to vote. It's about making it harder to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote and whether your vote counts at all. Voter suppression. It's about making it harder to vote. Said Joe Biden. 
He then did an event down in Georgia that weirdly Stacey Abrams decided not to attend. Stacey Abrams, who fancies herself the sitting governor of Georgia. She, of course, lost in 2018 by 55,000 votes to Brian Kemp, never conceded. She's an election truther extraordinaire. She's a conspiracy theorist, and she's made a lot of money off of that because her tribe rewarded her conspiracy theories, including the incoming press secretary at the White House who repeated the lie that that election was stolen. Hillary Clinton said it. Basically, every major Democrat in the country said it. Because that's their side, their tribe, doing the thing that they hate when a Republican like Donald Trump does it. But if it's their gal, Stacey Abrams, let's make her rich. Let's make her the nominee again next time. Let's put her on the vice presidential shortlist as someone who had done nothing. All she did was famously lie about losing an election, and she rocketed to stardom. She coined the Jim Crow 2.0 thing. This was her central issue. Then she started getting nervous because the boycotts started to hurt actual Georgians. We'll talk about those boycotts in just a second. But here was Biden down there with Kamala Harris. They went together to talk about Jim Crow 2.0. Stacey Abrams was nowhere to be found. She was busy that day. She was busy that week. You know what? She was busy that month. She realizes how popular... Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are in her state and did not want to stand so close to them, even on her own signature bogus issue. Biden got more demagogic in that most recent visit. We ripped him to shreds for this one in cut 32. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it'll be even less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. Bull Connor. Jefferson Davis. The implication was crystal clear. If you're on the side of so-called voter suppression, the Republicans in Georgia, Brian Kemp, etc., you are a racist. You are the modern day equivalent, although Biden would say worse. That's the thing. Worse than Jim Crow. That's what was so insane, even beyond the merits. He would say this is worse, which is, again, historically illiterate, but unsurprising coming from this guy. But you're the modern-day equivalent, but worse, of a segregationist and a Confederate leader. And a lot of people took exception to that. Biden sort of tried to deny that that's what he meant. He meant it. Or at least the people who loaded it into his teleprompter for him to read, they meant it. And he said it. And the words of a president matter. So he took out the biggest artillery we have in this country in terms of rhetoric. Slavery. Jim Crow. Segregation. Civil War. The Confederacy. He blasted all of that full force at the Republicans in Georgia. It was him, it was Stacey Abrams, it was Kamala Harris, it was people in the media, it was a bunch of activists, and 
a bunch of corporations got scared. They had some loud, whiny, agitating people within their ranks and outside activists as well applying this pressure, colluding together. Where these companies had no objection to the law as it was being written, which is actually very similar to what happened with Disney down in Florida. Then all of a sudden, the left kicks up a big fuss over it. And these CEOs and corporate leaders go cowering into a corner because they are scared of the woke left mob. So you saw Coca-Cola prostrate itself. You saw Delta Airlines in a particularly craven about face go from having good faith conversations apparently, raising no objections about this legislation, to coming out against it. Because you had a bunch of left-wingers demanding that they do it, and these are Georgia-based companies. I mean, some heavy hitters, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines. Remember, they were really angry at Home Depot for not joining the witch hunt on this. And the one that really got me was Major League Baseball. And that dreadful commissioner who declined. We had Governor Kemp on this show. Kemp said he offered to talk the commissioner through the law. The commissioner said not interested and then announced that Major League Baseball, under pressure from these people, Major League Baseball was going to take the All-Star game out of Atlanta and push it elsewhere. I ended up not watching. I don't even remember where it went. I think Denver, a very white city comparatively. That's where they, they got the business there to prove a point on race or voter suppression, whatever, Major League Baseball swallowed whole the garbage being fed to them by the left wing in this country, and they sided with them. And they hurt a bunch of businesses in Atlanta, including black-owned and minority-owned businesses in the process, based on a bunch of lies about what was actually in the law and what was not. And the thing is, these companies didn't care. They didn't care about the substance. Just like Disney doesn't care about the substance in the Florida law. They care about making a certain group of loud people be on their side and not try to tear them down. And so those people often have just been calling the shots in recent years. So that's what happened. Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, huge impact on this. Based on, I'm going to use the word, Misinformation. Rampant misinformation. Now, Delta eventually kind of backed away. It passed. They were nervous about taking off the Republicans. So they've sort of piped down. Very brave, aren't they, over at Delta Airlines? What a profile and courage they've put on. Coca-Cola also, I guess they got together and said, Ooh, you know what, let's, uh, let's walk away from some of this stuff. And I made the joke, they were Woca-Cola, then they're moving to Diet Woke, and my preference is Woke Zero. Right? That's the joke that I made, and I stand by it. And Major League Baseball, they said, you know what, we don't really anticipate doing something like that again. Maybe some of these companies are learning their lesson. Maybe Disney getting slapped across the face by Ron DeSantis, that seems to have spooked a bunch of companies. 
And I read you from the Wall Street Journal piece the other day saying you've got corporate CEOs saying, how do we avoid being the next Disney on this? There's another story about how a lot of companies decided not to say a word about the abortion decision at the Supreme Court. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of the lessons are being learned. I don't know. I don't want to be too Pollyannish or optimistic about that because the left remains culturally extremely powerful. And they have infiltrated corporate America to no longer tear down corporate America, although they're happy to do that, but to co-opt corporate America to do their culture war bidding for them. Now, why, as I asked before rhetorically, why am I rehashing all of this now? Why am I going back and recapitulating a huge fight that we had in this country over a law that's now been on the books for many months? What's the news hook? The news hook is this. There's an election happening in Georgia. The primary election is coming up in just a few weeks. It's a very carefully watched primary down there, especially in the governor's race on the Republican side. They spent weeks screaming at the top of their lungs, led by the president of the United States, insisting that this was a voter suppression scheme designed to make it harder to vote, rooted in racism. That's what they said. And a lot of people believe them, although it ended up being a popular bill in Georgia and pretty popular, marginally popular across the country as well. So the big agitation failed with the public, a lot of it at least, but worked with some of the intended targets, including the gullible jerks at Major League Baseball, who obviously know nothing about politics and very much should stay in their lane. Well, let me bring you an update on the suppression. Are you ready for a voter suppression, Jim Crow on steroids update from the state of Georgia? I cannot wait to bring it to you. You want to hear it, and it's next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We've been building up to this moment, reminding you, refreshing your memory of all of the lies that were told about the Georgia election law last year. Lies that were amplified or embraced by the Democratic Party, the media, the cultural elites, corporate America. And now I'm about to do what I like to think of as my own part in accountability journalism. Accountability matters. Did all the things that they told you pan out? Or were we right all along? Here's a tweet from Gabriel Sterling, who helps run their elections down there. We've had him on the show who told the truth about the election in 2020 in that state. He was criticized by some Republicans for that. Then when he tells the truth in other ways about Stacey Abrams and other things, then the left turns on him. Here's simply a fact from Gabriel Sterling. This was on May 9th. Over the weekend, Georgia stayed on a record turnout pace. So far, 180,620 voters have already cast their primary ballots. Early in-person has seen 97,168 GOP. 69,136 Dem, and 1,284 nonpartisan votes. Mailed absentee has been 6,107 GOP, 6,696 for Democrats, and 229 nonpartisan. So that was the update via Gabriel Sterling on the 9th. Here's one from late last night. 
from one of the top reporters at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Bluestein tweeted this, actually, while I was, ironically, at a Major League Baseball game. More than 215,000 Georgians have voted so far in this cycle, he tweeted. About triple the number who voted during the same period in the 2018 election. About triple the number who voted during the same period in the 2018 election. Triple. We play you the clip. Joe Biden said, quote, Jim Crow 2.0, talking about the Georgia law, is, quote, about making it harder to vote. And compared to the last midterm cycle, turnout is up by triple in the expanded early voting in Georgia so far. The goal was never to make it harder to vote. It was to make it harder to cheat. People are taking advantage of this situation. They are voting in record numbers, blowing out the turnout in the early vote compared to four years ago. They lied over and over again. They are being proven to be liars in real time. That's why I wanted to do this. It wasn't long ago that they were making these claims. They are being tested immediately. We are testing their lies right now, and their lies are falling apart. They did not tell the truth. They did it intentionally. They did it to scare you. They did it to whip up racial resentment. They did it to bully corporations, and it worked. And if you're Coke, if you're Delta, if you're Major League Baseball, if you're any of these people that went along with this trash, please remember who lied to you and never listen to them again. Because Jim Crow 2.0, the voter suppression scheme, is resulting in a hell of a lot more voting. So there's your update on voter suppression. It's going exactly the way the left said it would not. There are lessons to be learned. Please, I beg of you, let this be a teachable moment on credibility. Words and demagoguery have consequences, and when you are shown to be talking out of your ass and it is proven, that ought to matter, and people ought to pay attention. And yes, I'm talking not just to those corporations not just to Stacey Abrams, who stirred this whole pot for years, but all the way up to the president of the United States himself, who arguably was the worst person in the country on this. I would love for someone to ask him about this. Maybe Peter Ducey can ask him about this Jim Crow 2.0 update. I'm sure we would get a very coherent, detailed answer from President Joe Biden, because he's known for that, isn't he? Guy Benson Show continues after this. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. On this Wednesday from New York City, very happy to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day on demand. 
and it is growing. I mean, just exploding, and we're very grateful to all of you for that. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. We may or may not have gotten a massive shipment in at the house because we're doing a barbecue for Memorial Day, and they are kind of sponsoring it. So, PSA, long drink at my house, but only for those of you who are invited, and we're still on the fence with Christine. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. They're expanding all over the country. They'll be in 40 states by the end of next month, 40, after only being in, I think, 17 or 18 last year, which is amazing. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. Well, joining us here in studio in the Big Apple is Martha McCallum, who's based here, of course, executive editor and anchor of The Story at 3 p.m. Eastern every weekday on Fox News Channel. She's the Fox News Politics co-anchor as well, author of the best-selling book Unknown Valor. More on that in a moment. And also her podcast is The Untold Story with Martha McCallum at foxnewspodcast.com. Martha, it's great to see you. Uh, am I invited to the Memorial Day long drink party? You are, as is your daughter, actually. Oh, she, good, She good. had to decline because she's a little busy these yeah, days, as you might know. She's working down in Florida. Yes. Um, well, that's good. And I guess we're in the second most powerful city in America. Yes. I mean, normally the show's based in D.C. I feel like it's the most powerful city in the world, D.C., right? Mm-hmm. I think in terms of concentrated probably right about that. power. I guess, yeah. And then New York's kind of the capital of the world. Right. In its but, you know, you're, we're from New Jersey, so New York is number one. <laughs> I mean, I just want to make things perfectly clear. I think that's fair. But but having now lived in D.C. for, gosh, 12 years yeah. in that neck of the woods, I actually heard the tagline on, like, a pop radio station years ago from the most powerful city in the world – I remember thinking, oh, technically, I think that's right. And then secondly, that's actually kind of sounds badass. Exactly. So we're going to kind of take that. But you could also turn it around to say, you know, that it technically is the most powerful city in the world because the United States is, as of now, last time I checked, still the most powerful country in the world, although right. that, that could change. Yeah, we're working uh, on that. But there's a lot of people in America who might feel like there's too much power centralized in Washington. And that they have, you know, the power in the rest of the country. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll just put that out there for things people to ponder. I think that's right. We also don't want to open the show with the voice of God dude being like, from the horrible swamp that you all hate. <laughs> right? Like that. Probably wise marketing. Right. Absolutely. So that, that's why it went the way that we did. So I want to ask you about a bunch of disparate things here in the time that we have together, starting with you wrote the book, Unknown Valor, that amazing history in World War II and the connections. You are now just finishing up a very exciting project for Fox Nation related to World War II. Obviously, an area of great intellectual curiosity for you and like personal passion. Talk about is there any specific connection between the book and the project? Tell us about the secret history of World War II on Fox Nation. Well, it's a it's a really interesting um, group of pieces that deal with a number of things in terms of intelligence and, you know, a whole mission that was about in doing inflatable uh, troops, basically um, machinery that looked like it was tanks where they would try to create a, a presence oh, for, for D-Day. Yeah, kind of like, the fake you know, out. the Trojan horse. I mean, these are what, what really interests me is that the tactics that were used either in code breaking or creating um, the presence of a force that was only a tenth of the size that they wanted it to appear to be using loudspeakers to create and where they recorded battle sounds and played it over a certain area in order to create um, a feint for the enemy. So all these tactics are fascinating in the secret history of World War II. And they also um, highlight a number of individuals who are true heroes, whose whose work during World War II was not on the front lines and was not recognized for decades and shows you how instrumental they were in 
really, you know, bringing us to the point of victory ultimately. Well, so they're, they're amazing of, stories. A lot of people from that era literally changed the trajectory of the history of the world, and the world could be a much darker place. It's dark a lot of the time. It could be much worse if things had gone differently in World War II. And a lot of those people who did those remarkable, sensational, heroic, earth-changing, earth-shattering things took those things to their grave. They didn't brag about it. They didn't really talk about it. It takes some excavation from historians and people like you to actually bring these stories to the fore for us to see – and appreciate. Have you seen on Netflix the the World War II footage they've colorized? Yes. That special, maybe eight episodes. Yeah. It's I watched amazing. the whole thing. I couldn't yeah. take my eyes off of it. And the number one feeling that I got over and over again was overwhelming gratitude. Like I don't know. I hope that we would rise to that occasion again these days. I don't know. But they did. They died in huge numbers. They sacrificed in shocking ways. To literally save the world. And, like, I got emotional watching it because both of my grandfathers were from that era. Both were in World War II. And it just sort of reminded us literally in living color in this Netflix thing uh, how dramatic a lot of it was. And I cannot wait for your special, The Secret History of World War II, exclusively on Fox Nation coming Memorial Day. Yeah. So um, right around just, the corner. Just a quick thought on that before you move on is that that's the question, and I hear this so many, so often from so many people. Would we do it again? Would this generation be a greatest generation? We, we've become such an incredibly self-centered society. Everything is about me first, essentially, my identity, my understanding, my truth. Um, and they were willing to sacrifice everything for something that they just believed in and loved, the United States of America, which was brutally attacked at Pearl Harbor. So um, I, I think that's it, – it's a – unsettling question. Um, and I think it's one of the main reasons that I like to bring these stories to people over and over and over again is mm. to put it in front of them and have them think about it. Yeah, I think. And look, a lot of people my age, a little older, rushed out to sign up for the military after 9-11. That's right. Millions of people have served voluntarily from younger generations and thousands have died far, far away. So I think there's there's a core of this country that is great. Could we mobilize a huge national war effort the way that we did back then, especially – and some of it is differences in generations and values. Some of it's also just like social media. There weren't these other things that I think would have made World War II maybe more difficult to cohere yeah, yeah, here absolutely. at home. Those were not realities then. Yeah. They are now. No, and I think the people that you point to after 9-11 and post that, that we have some of the most extraordinary – uh, committed members of the military that we've ever had in the history of the country. It, they're, a, they're a smaller group, and we don't uh, we don't recognize them and commend them often enough in the rest of the culture mm -hmm. um, because everybody's so busy looking at you know Instagram and TikTok. Right, they're TikTok, and that's why I was at the Yankee game last night, and I'll talk about that later in the hour. They did, as many sports teams do, an honor moment mm -hmm. for someone who had served, and he got a big ovation. That's great. And I know some people sort of think that's cheesy and maybe jingoistic or whatever. I think it matters, and it's the least we can do yeah. as like a, just a little modicum of gratitude for people who otherwise wouldn't think about it ever, for them to think about it 
a little bit occasionally at a sporting event, I think, is a yeah. good, healthy thing. Uh, well, let's just, you know, just remember that uh, leading into our involvement in World War II, people didn't want to get involved, right? That was the sentiment across the country. Enough yep. already. We, we watched World War I. We saw all those boys die in the trenches. We're not going back there. We're not doing this. This isn't our problem. What's happening in Europe with Hitler is, um, is terrible. So we'll send over some equipment and we'll back you. Sound familiar? Mm. Um, to what we're seeing today. So I hope that... It doesn't take an attack on this country. I pray and hope that doesn't happen. But that's what changed the attitude so dramatically in America. And that's what changed the attitude on 9-11 as well was an attack at home. And we understand that, you know, um, and we hope that doesn't happen. Martha, another one of your passions and areas of great interest is the British royal family. And whenever there's a big news story over there, often I feel like you bring your show over to London and you get all dressed up in the whole thing. And you know all the nomenclature and everything that I don't. So there are things swirling around at the periphery of my social media feeds that I have seen. Number one, this jubilee that's coming. I don't quite know what that is. Uh, maybe you can help help explain that, disentangle that for me. And the, obviously I know it's around the queen in a certain number of years that she's been on the throne. She was just this week not at a major event where she typically shows up. Is that a health issue? Are fans of the queen concerned? I mean, she's She's really getting up there, right? So maybe help us with, with these things. I guess you could call 96 getting up there. Yeah, she's definitely getting up there. She is an extraordinarily uh, strong woman. And I think my interest in all of these stories is just because I love history, you know? And I love, you know, tracing it back. You talk about World War II. I mean, the, the royal family really was such a source of strength during World War II. They went down into the subways, into the bunkers where people were um, seeking safety while during the Blitz, right? So when I look at Queen Elizabeth, I see that kind of person. I see someone who from, from the day she be became queen unexpectedly um she said my whole life whether it be short or long will be in service of my country so this is the kind of thing we're talking about right so for me that reminds me of the ethics of world war ii of the of that time in history when people put other things above themselves and she has done that her whole life you know she's not a perfect person nobody's a perfect person um i think when she does go uh, there'll be something lost because she's been sort of in the backdrop of our history uh, throughout all of our presidents um, in, you know, rec- in recent times. She, oh, there's only... Well, even not so recent only times. Lin- no, only Lyndon Johnson was a president who never um, met with the queen. And for every one of them, it's, it's an important moment because she serves as sort of a completely anonymous, behind-the-scenes uh, person who people can talk to and retain some wisdom from. I think she's been a queen during 14 prime ministers and every one of them has at different points leaned on her to help them to influence uh, in, in the way that she can. It's a constitutional monarchy. She's not in charge of the country, but there's an now, influence. Even some of the ones that she had maybe a bit of a prickly relationship with, yeah. they still kind of needed each other and oh, would lean on each other. Absolutely. Um, so I, I just look at it. The reason that I find it interesting is because I'm, I'm interested in, in the, all of that history. Uh, and I think that um, that she has stood for, for exactly what we're talking about, where you sort of put something more important than yourself. And and also, I think that's the, the lesson that she has tried to convey to the younger generations of it. You know, for Meghan and Harry, it's like all about them. Right. And so she's saying, no, actually, it's not about you. It's about your country. It's about what you can do to serve. You're incredibly privileged. And if you want an opportunity to give back, there's no better structure for you to do that in than the one that you were born into. Um, and we see what's happening now, right? So they left. They went to California. They think they're going to be like these great philanthropists. And now Netflix is like dropping projects um, that well, they were supposed to do. they're not doing anything. Because, well, they don't they, – what do they have, right? I mean there's an argument that when they did that Oprah inf- interview, they kind of 
that was it, yeah. right? Like after you lay all that out there and you drop all those bombs, what more do you have that makes someone go, ooh, I think I'm going to turn on Netflix and watch them tonight, right? See, the difference between the podcast that we do here at The Guy Benson Show and the Harry and Meghan po- podcast is that they got paid a lot more <laughs> and didn't produce any content. Exactly. Which is probably exactly. a fun gig if you can right. get it. Right. But few can, and right. they're not keeping the gigs because there's not any there. there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting story. So to to get back to your original question, um, this is the 70th. It's a platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne, longest reigning monarch of any in British history and in most of the other um, royal history around as well. So, yes, you know, um, when is that? It's the first weekend in June. Okay, And we will go over and cover it. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's I, I just find all of that, the history behind it, very interesting. All the way back to, you know, whether you look at Henry VIII and the creation of the church, the break from the Catholic church, it's all history that I find um, interesting. I did ask, because someone asked here, one of the bosses, are you guys going to cover the Jubilee? And I said, I don't know, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of figured out what it was. And I said, well, can you send me to London? I'll definitely cover it from there. <laughs> and the response was, you can go if Martha will put you in her suitcase. Uh, so just something to put out there for you to consider, Martha. You have a fairly large suitcase. <laughs> it's, I would imagine you could, you'd have an extra large, like a duffel bag. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be very comfortable. Uh, final question from your show today, the story, Fox News Channel, an exclusive one-on-one, Mike Pence, the former vice president, a lot of interest in Looking backwards with him, also looking ahead mm. and what he might have in store. What really jumped out at you in your conversation with the former vice president? So, you know, I mean, one of the things that's really been on my mind with this whole uh, abortion debate is how incredibly devolved it has become. I mean, I think back to Bill Clinton and talking, he would talk about how abortion should be safe and legal and rare. I, I, I thought there wasn't really anybody who didn't want it to be rare. Um, I know people who've been through this situation, and I don't know anyone who wants to hashtag shout your abortion so or you know step on baby dolls in front of churches. Where does that come from? Mm. Where, where does that come from? I honestly don't know. I understand the nuances of this debate. I understand the emotion on all sides of it. That I don't understand. So I asked him, you know, what has happened to our society that we've become so crass and unfeeling that – that that's where some now this is the, just a very fringe 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 of this of this debate right but the stuff we're seeing I think is appalling I asked him about that but it's an influential fringe it is an influential when you fringe. look at media coverage and the political debate and and policy being proposed yeah it's an influential fringe I I just I find it really deeply disturbing and I say that as someone who you know I understand the sides of the debate I don't understand those actions at all I don't understand how anyone could be so. Um, so unfeeling and so inhuman <laughs> to approach it that way. Um, we talked about that a bit. And and also, um, you know, I asked him what he thought about President Trump and Elon Musk and Musk's, you know, call to restore him to Twitter, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that some of the comments that got President Trump removed from Twitter were really harsh comments against him, mm-hmm. against Mike Pence. So I asked him, do you think he should be returned, given the things that he said about you on Twitter? Interesting. If people want to watch that interview, they can do so. Foxnews.com will have a bunch of coverage. It'll be on YouTube, I'm sure. There's also, as we mentioned minutes ago, the Fox Nation special, The Secret History of World War II, coming Memorial Day, featuring, starring our guest, Martha McCallum, who is 
packing her bags very carefully, I hope, as she gets ready <laughs> for London. For Guy and a little bit of long drink, because he doesn't go anywhere without it. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, <laughs> excuse me, the queen likes gin, if I'm oh, recalling course, that correctly. Yes. So Doesn't th- everybody? That might be the secret to 96 <laughs> years. I'm just saying. Martha, it is always great to see you. Martha McCallum, Thanks, every weekday, 3 p.m., the Story Fox News Channel. Always appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. And I got a note from a listener the other day. We sometimes do topics during the happy hour on food. Food and drink. It's a prominent repeat area of interest here at The Guy Benson Show. And so this listener passed along a meme that we thought might be worth discussing. And I sent it to the team, and we were so unanimous that we thought we could probably cover it in about a minute or two, which is all we have in this segment. Now, many of you probably know my thoughts on breakfast. I have some hot takes on breakfast. It is probably one of my least popular takes that I have. I hate sweet breakfast items, especially the warm, sticky, sweet sugar bread, wet sugar bread category of pancakes, etc. French toast, no thank you. Cereal is a little bit more of a gray area. I will very occasionally eat cereal. And the meme in question said, how do you prepare your cereal? Do you pour the cereal itself into the bowl and then milk on top of it? Or do you pour a bowl filled with milk and then dump some cereal into that pre-poured milk? And I was like, does anyone do the latter? Does a single human being pour the milk first? No, no. It's cereal first, then the milk, obviously. And like, we're all in agreement here. Four for four. If you disagree, you might be a sociopath. The only question is, do you drink the cereal-infused milk when the cereal itself is gone? That is more controversial. I would say yes. And we're getting head shakes and nods from the other side of the glass. So you can contemplate that one. But if you pour milk first and then the cereal into that, mm -mm. no, sir, no, ma'am. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. And it continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Earlier in our first hour, we welcome back to the program Florida Senator, not Wisconsin Senator, sorry, Mr. President, Rick Scott, a Republican who's also the NRSC chairman this cycle. Here's part of my conversation with Senator Scott. One of the questions that was posed to President Biden during the Q&A was about something you said about him He had a very quick, curt reply. Let's listen to cut 24 real quick. He said, and I'm just quoting here, that uh, the best thing, most effective thing Joe Biden can do to solve the inflation crisis he created is resign. He's the problem. The senator added later, the senator added later, Joe Biden is unwell, he's unfit for office, he's incoherent, incapacitated, and confused. These are his words, offering him a chance to respond. I think the man has a problem. That was it. I think the man, meaning you, has a problem. You had some tough words about him. He says you have a problem. Do you want to keep this going? What's your response to that? Well, I mean, he, he, we all know he can't do the job. I mean, we, we watch, you watch his press conference. I mean, he's confused about what state I live in. He confuses the facts. I mean, you feel sorry for the guy because you know that he can't do the job. Look at the Biden economy. 
8.3% inflation, probably what, a 40-year high. The gas price is highest ever. You can't buy baby formula. In the United States of America, mothers can't get baby formula. This is the United States of America. We've got low labor participation. We've got a GDP that's going down, interest rates going up, stock market going down. I mean, this is a problem. This guy doesn't have any plan. Like yesterday was a press conference on his plan to fix inflation. You know what his plan was? Blame everybody else. He has no ideas. So, you know, in business, here's what would happen in a business. You know, you'd say, Joe, come on. I know you tried hard. You just can't do the job. Maybe we got another job for you, but you can't have this one. And we're going to put somebody in there that can do the job. That's what we need to be doing here. He can't do it. He has no ideas how to fix it. Would you rather have the vice president? He can't do it. Would you rather have the vice president in that role? I don't know how it could be any worse. I mean, what could she – what could possibly – you look at the radical uh, people he's appointing to these, to these boards and commissions, and, and, then, and how could she be any worse than what he is? Oh, she might try. <laughs> I, mean, I think she'd give it her best shot. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's staggering, the, the, the incompetence. I mean, Romando, the Secretary of Commerce, came to testify the other day. I said, what are you doing to stop inflation? She said, oh, it's all the Federal Reserve's problem. I asked, I asked the Secretary of Transportation, Buttigieg, what are you doing to fix, fix the supply chain? I said, you've been out to the, the ports in California once. He says he, he, had, no, he had no answer. That all they do is they blame somebody else. Wait, hang on. The Transportation Secretary – I just want to go back. The Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, has gone out to the ports in California only one time? Right. Wow. I mean, you know, I had hurricanes, right? I'm a, first off, I'm a business guy. When you have a business problem, what do you do? You go show up and you stay there until it gets solved. If you ever bring in a new management team, if you have to work through you know, the employees, if you have to build relationships, you stay and fix it. He's been there once, once. Mm. And so you, know, you think, don't you guys want to do something here? You look at, you look at, look at the border. I said, I mean, what name one thing you're doing to make the border more secure. I told, I told the Secretary of Homeland Security, how does it make you feel when a National Guard member dies trying to save migrants that would not be coming here illegally but for your actions? And by the way, those migrants were bringing drugs into the country to kill American citizens. I said, how does it make you feel when 105,000 people, 105,000 people died of drug overdoses last year? I said, and you did it. You personally did it. You decided to have a open border. You decided to stop building the wall. You just you decided to tell people they could come here. My full interview with Rick Scott, U.S. Senator from Florida, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of our free podcast, which is on demand, no charge to you every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, a baseball story for you. And even if you're not a baseball fan, I encourage you to stay tuned. I'm passionate about it. There are audio sound bites to play as well, including some classical music. That's true. And it's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show from New York. Got America Reports tomorrow. We've got Gutfeld tomorrow. Busy on the TV side here in New York City, the world headquarters of Fox News Channel and Fox News Media. Thank you very much 
for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast, of course, is always free. So leading into this segment at the end of last segment, the tease was a baseball story. And I want to tell you a baseball story. You might not be a baseball fan. You might not be a sports fan. I think there's something universal about a thrilling moment. And I want to tell you this story. And I hope you'll indulge me for the next few minutes. Now, warning, if you happen to be a Toronto Blue Jays fan, you might want to sit this one out. Okay. So it was a beautiful day in New York City yesterday, 70 degrees, sunny. And I thought to myself, I have not been to a Yankees game since the pandemic. I'm a Yankees fan. I'm skeptical about this team. They've been playing very well. And usually when I'm up in New York, I have TV every evening. But the way my schedule worked yesterday was my TV was midday, then the radio show, and I just had an open evening, which is very rare in New York City. Check the schedule. Yankees are in town. They're playing Toronto. So I poked around, made a few calls, got a couple tickets to this game, and ended up inviting and going with my friend Ryan Ferguson and his girlfriend Ryan If you don't remember his story, it's remarkable. They made a documentary about it that's on Netflix called Dream Killer, wrongfully convicted of a murder that he had nothing to do with. He spent 10 years, basically his entire 20s, in prison for a murder that he was not guilty of. In fact, that he has been totally vindicated. And we did an hour-long interview with him on this show with his dad. So you can go back and listen to that. I encourage it. So Ryan and I went to the Yankee game. And his girlfriend had work, but she joined us a little bit later in the evening. Things did not start well. Yankees had one of their better pitchers on the mound. Severino did not look terribly sharp. He gave up three runs in the first two innings. Yankees are down 3 nothing. I'm a little bummed because I don't get to the games very often. It was not shaping up to be a victory last night. But I was happy to be in the Bronx, happy to be at the game, And was just going to try to enjoy the evening regardless. Had a beer, had a hot dog, enjoying sort of the people watching, etc. The sixth inning rolls around, and the Yankees are getting no hit. They have no base hits at all over the course of the first five innings. Bottom of the sixth, finally, LeMahieu doubles. Things are starting to happen. There are two men on. For Giancarlo Stanton, big power hitter, who comes up and lofts a fly ball down the right field line to the shallowest part of the ballpark, that short porch in right, and the ball just sneaks just over the fence. It's a three-run home run. Not exactly a prodigious blast, but a very Yankee Stadium home run the opposite way. In the box score, it counts as three runs, and the place was... Pretty electric. Game now tied. The Yankees were dead in the water, doing nothing, and now the game's tied. We go through the seventh inning stretch, take me out to the ball game, all that good stuff. And in the top of the eighth inning, the Blue Jays rally for two runs, including a pretty dramatic triple where there's a play at the plate. The guy slides in safely. It's 4-3 Toronto. Then the next run comes in. It's on a sack fly, 5-3 to three in the top of the eighth inning. My buddy, Ryan, has to leave. Now, he told me that he had to leave right before 10.30 regardless because he came to the game. He came to the ballpark straight from work, 
and he had to put his laptop bag in a locker at a business across the street from Yankee Stadium, and they close at 1030, which to me is insane. The whole point is you put your bag there so you can go and watch the game and not have to worry about any of it. But I guess closing time was 1030. He had to go get that bag, so he left after the top of the eighth with the Yankees losing. And I will confess to you, I had a temptation to leave as well. By that point, it was pretty cold. The wind was blowing. The Yankees had sort of made their comeback, and then the Blue Jays had come back and seemingly taken, not command, but control of the game. So I thought about it, but I had one of those weird, inexplicable sports fan intuitions. And maybe it's just BS. Maybe that's not even real. But there was something in my gut that just said, don't go anywhere. You can get on the train, take the subway back down to Manhattan when the game's over. Stick around. It's only a two-run game. So I did. Bottom of the eighth, the Yankees threaten a little bit. Nothing comes of it. Go to the ninth. Nothing doing in the top of the ninth. And it's all down to the bottom of the ninth. Sort of the classic baseball cliche. First batter up, strikes out, if memory serves. So two outs away from losing this game. Yankees trailing 5-3. to three. Up to the plate comes the number nine hitter, the very bottom of the lineup, who hadn't even had a single at bat the whole game because he was substituted in as the catcher, a light-hitting catcher, because there was a pinch hitter sort of in the mid-innings. So this was his first at bat in the whole game. This guy doesn't hit home runs. This guy doesn't really get on base. This guy doesn't play a lot. But here he was in a very important position. No one on, one out, bottom of the ninth. The Yankees down two. And the Blue Jays' closer walks him. And there was just ripple of excitement around the stadium. Like our number nine hitter just got walked. And the tying run has come to the plate in the person of D.J. LeMahieu, the leadoff hitter. Very good hitter. Good at bat for LeMahieu, which then concludes in another walk. And as soon as ball four hit the catcher's mitt, not only did the place erupt, because now there's a full-blown rally that might be happening, and you've got the tying runs on base, you've got the winning run at the plate, the best hitters coming up, it's like late-inning magic, and Yankee Stadium comes to life. Yankee fans are loud. A lot of people have left already, but the remaining fans are loud. And there's just this sense, there's this energy in the building where people are saying something is happening, and we're going to try to will it into existence. We're going to try to get into the Blue Jays' heads. The Blue Jays were sort of scrambled because they'd had multiple people ejected. There were controversies throughout the game. They felt like maybe they'd finally come back to beat the Yankees, but maybe the doubt was starting to creep in, and we wanted to fuel the doubt as loudly as possible. So ball four hits the mitt of the catcher. The place goes crazy just for another walk. And in the PA system in Yankee Stadium, they blast eight very familiar notes that we've all heard before. And it's like, here we go. Getting into the psyche of this pitcher, their closer, just ratcheting up the pressure. 
the crowds chanting. It's that, oh, 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 like the whole place is doing it. That thumping beat, which happens just after Beethoven makes an appearance, which is looks like I got goosebumps just from those notes because it's like, here we go. This thing might be falling apart. Pressure, drama, it's all just building. So runners on first and second, one out. Aaron Judge, the Yankees, often right fielder who's playing center. Last night, he plays center sometimes. He comes up to the plate, big, huge power hitter. And he's, I would say, the most popular Yankee of the current vintage. He's got, you know, every, there's a little kid sitting in front of me with an Aaron Judge shirt. There were people behind me, by the way, who throughout the game were sort of ragging on Judge, saying he doesn't come through in the clutch. When you really need him, he doesn't do anything. The same guy later was saying, oh, I don't like to leave games early because you might miss exciting things. But then, like I'm overhearing this, then they left anyway after the bottom of the eighth. He's like, ah, whatever, we'll go. So Aaron Judge comes to the plate. He's down in the count, one and two. I think there was one pretty ugly swing there. So the Yankees are four strikes away from losing this game. It's five to three. The tying runs are at second and first base, respectively. Aaron Judge is at the plate. And here's what happened next. And the one-two. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. See ya. Up for grabs. There's his walk-off home run. And the Yankees have come back to win it. Six to five. In baseball, they call that a no-doubter. As soon as the ball went off the bat, the whole place went absolutely nuts because the ball was absolutely leaving the ballpark. It was a moonshot into the Bronx night to win it, a walk-off home run, the first of his career. This guy's had a successful early career. He had never hit a walk-off home run, and he did so last night in the bottom of the ninth to win the game. And if you listen carefully on the call that we just played, Michael Kay, by the way, on the Yes Network, was on play-by-play there. I'm pretty sure they started blasting Sinatra, New York, New York, which is what they play at the end of every Yankees game. I think they started, they must have hit play on Sinatra before the ball landed. I think the ball was still in the air. It was so obvious that the game was over. And... People lost their minds. And this is what's fun about sports. And whether you're a Yankees fan or a Yankees hater, not even a baseball fan, if you care about sports at all, you have memories where you're so overcome with excitement and happiness that you kind of have an out-of-body experience. By this point, I was by myself. My friends had left. I was jumping up and down like a child. It was so fun. I got hugged by a complete stranger. There was this, like, black teenager who came running up the aisle, and we made eye contact, and he just, like, hugged me. I was so happy. This is someone that, you know, I would probably never see again. I doubt we have all that much in common in our lives. But we have this. And just the drama of it. I was so relieved that I stayed. I would have been kicking myself for days if I had left that game early. So Aaron Judge rounds third base, comes to home plate. He's mobbed by the team. And the Yankees beat the Blue Jays 6-5 to five in the Bronx. 
in about as dramatic a conclusion to a baseball game you will ever see. And I was there, and I'm glad that I happen to have Gutfeld tomorrow and not last night. So thank you for indulging me. That's my baseball story from Yankee Stadium last night. And if you left early last night, unless you had a good excuse, like your bag was going to be left there overnight if you didn't, so Ryan's off the hook, this is an object lesson. When you've got a good team and they're only down two, there might be some magic on the way. And there was. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time as usual. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you then. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.